Hey guys, welcome to True Crimes Weird Times. I'm Kim. And I'm Ashley. And today we're going to do something a little bit different. We will be doing a combined episode that has a little bit of true crime and a whole lot of conspiracy. We're going to be talking about Danny Casolaro, who was a journalist found dead in his hotel in Martinsburg, West Virginia on August 10th, 1991. The police ruled his death a suicide, but by the end of his life, he was immersed in conspiracies, threats, and mystery. So I'll be telling you about the actual murder. And I'll be diving into the conspiracy theories that may have gotten Casolaro killed. Joseph Daniel Casolaro was born June 16, 1947, in McLean, Virginia. He attended Providence College until 1968 and married Terrell Pace, a former Miss Virginia. They were married for 10 years, after which Casolaro was granted full custody of their son. In the 1970s, Casolaro got into journalism and covered controversial political articles, including the Soviet naval presence in Cuba, the Castro Intelligence Network, and the Chinese communist smuggling of opium into the United States. Towards the end of the 70s, he decided to instead procure several computer industry trade publications, which basically means he got into selling magazines about the business of computers. But the business was less successful than he had planned, and he began selling those in the late 80s. Then in 1990, he decided to go back to journalism again, and he began to show an interest in the Inslaw case. Now, Ashley is going to give you all the info you could ever want on the Inslaw case (laughs) soon, along with various other conspiracies. But first, we're going to talk about the actual murder. So Casolaro dives into this piece he's working on about the Inslaw case, and after months of investigation and being in contact with several shady figures, he was convinced he had uncovered a group of U.S. officials, organized crime members, and intelligence agents that made up a secret network called the Octopus. On August 5th, 1991, he contacted retired CID officer, which is a detective, Bill McCoy to tell him that Time Magazine had assigned him an article about the octopus, and in fact, the publishers had agreed to finance the effort. These claims were later proven to be false, though, and I don't actually have an explanation for why, other than just letting someone know what he was looking into. That's what it sounds like. To scare. Did he think this guy had information that he might give him if he was afraid? Mm, I I didn't think about that, yeah. I don't know. I don't know why he contacted him, but he did tell this officer that. A couple of days later, he mentioned to his friend Ben Mason that he was having trouble sleeping for the past few months due to continuous phone calls being made during the night. The following day, his longtime housekeeper, Olga Mokros, helped Danny pack for a trip to Martinsburg, West Virginia. He claimed to be meeting with a source who promised to provide him with important information to his story. She helped him pack a black leather tote, and recalls packing him a dark brown or black suitcase full of papers and notes. Now, before he left, Danny told his brother that if anything were to happen to him in Martinsburg, that it would not be an accident. Now, after Casolero leaves, Olga said she answered several threatening phone calls that same day. The first was at 9 a.m., where a man stated, I will cut his body and throw it to the sharks. An hour later, a different man said, drop dead. A third and fourth call came in, but it was silent except for what Olga thought was music playing in the background. A fifth call came in later that night, but was completely silent. Sounds pretty shady to me. So now the actual trip. 
Casalero's whereabouts are unknown the afternoon he arrived on August 8, 1991. But here's what we know about the afternoon of August 9th. The day before his death, he ate at a pizza hut near the hotel where he told a waitress he liked her eyes and quoted a line from the Great Gatsby to her. Oh. We know that at 2.30 p.m., he met with Honeywell engineer William Richard Turner at the Sheraton. Now, we know he was a whistleblower at Honeywell, but that's about all we know about this guy for sure. Turner says he gave Casalero some documents and spoke for a few minutes before leaving. But witnesses report Casalero spent the next few hours at the restaurant, actually. Casalero was also seen at Heatherfield's, a cocktail lounge at the Sheraton, around 5 p.m., with a man described by a waitress as maybe Arab or Iranian. At around 5.30 p.m. that evening, Casalero met Mike Looney, who had rented the room next to his, and they got to talking a bit. Casalero mentioned he was there to meet an important source who was going to give him what he needed to solve the case. He later ran into Looney again around 8 p.m. in the hotel restaurant. Casalero was there waiting for the source he had told Looney about earlier, and the source was scheduled to arrive about 9 p.m., but around that time, Casalero left to make a phone call, and when he returned, he explained that his source may have blown him off. Casalero and Looney ended up talking until about 9.30 that night. Around 10 p.m., Casalero bought coffee at a nearby convenience store, and that was the last time anyone reported seeing Danny Casalero alive. The next morning, housekeeping walked in to discover Casalero dead and naked in the bathtub of his room. His wrist had been slashed with seven to eight cuts on his right wrist and three to four on his left. One of those cuts was so deep it severed tendons. Ugh. There was blood splattered on the floor and the wall around him, and he had a shoelace tied around his neck. Now, conspiracy or not, the way this case was handled by the police was absolutely unbelievable. Mm -hmm. When the police first arrived on the scene, the first thing they did was drain the bathtub. Ugh, infuriating. No one took any water samples. There was nothing in the drain to catch evidence. It was mm -hmm. just gone. Under his body, police found an empty beer can two white plastic trash bags, and a single-edged razor blade. In the bathroom, they found a half-full bottle of wine, an ashtray on the toilet, a broken glass on the ground, and some bloody towels. The rest of the room was neat and tidy, although the briefcase full of papers that Olga saw wasn't there, nor were the papers given to him by Turner the day before. A legal pad and pen were on the desk with a single page torn from the pad, the page read, To those who I love the most, please forgive me for the worst possible thing I could have done. Most of all, I'm sorry to my son. I know deep down inside that God will let me in. Now, as for the investigation, police didn't notify Casalero's family for two days after his death, mm -hmm. which is just unbelievable to me. They had to have known how to get a hold of somebody, I would assume. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't take two days to hunt someone down, right. anybody. Then they went ahead and just embalmed the body before the autopsy. And before contacting the family. Right. They didn't even have permission to do it. They're just like, well, we better get this guy embalmed. <laughs> they could have at least done the autopsy first. Well, normally they do. Right. So why would they send him to be embalmed? Yeah. Why were they in such a hurry? Yeah. Now, the autopsy that they did do after the embalming mm -hmm. showed cause of death to be blood loss and reported a bruise on his head and his upper left arm. 
There were trace amounts of alcohol in the body, as well as tricylic antidepressant, though it was so small they couldn't even tell what the antidepressant was, opiates, again, just trace amounts, and acetaminophen, which is Tylenol. Yeah. Now, he did have a prescription for the antidepressants, but they're not sure if he was actually taking them the way he was supposed to be. There was a wine bottle in the room, remember the half empty, and then the beer can in the tub, but they only found trace amounts of alcohol. So was he drinking? Was the embalming fluid throwing off that blood alcohol content? I mean, we don't know. We can't know. We don't know. We don't know if he was doing anything, how much he was doing of it. Right. If there were really opiates in his system, like how much did he take? Right. Was he in his right mind? Was he drunk? Was he mixing medications and alcohol? Mm -hmm. Like we don't. No, because they embalmed him first. (laughs) The day after the body was found, the room was thoroughly cleaned by a professional cleaning service. Getting rid of evidence. They threw out the bloody towels (laughs) from the bathroom floor. Now, I'm not sure who hired this cleaning service. I assume it was the hotel. But even if it was, why did the police allow them to come in here like this? I mean, Mm -hmm. why would they not secure this crime scene? Exactly. Also, the blood spray was investigated, and there were no void patterns found in the spatter, which means there was no shadow of another person you know, mm-hmm. in the room to keep it from hitting the wall. However, when the CSI detective learned there were towels in the bathroom, the bloody towels, he recanted his statement. I mean, you could take a towel and fling it at the walls and make blood spatter. Yeah. I mean, or you can take those towels and wipe off the wall. Exactly. Where a void pattern would be. So, yeah, it makes sense why he would not want to commit to that statement. But as far as all these crazy things that I'm bringing up, just for the <laughs> actual murder that we can prove really happened, Ashley's going to get into all the reasons why these things could have been happening and who could have been behind it. So, was this really a suicide or was this the octopus getting rid of someone who may have gotten too close to the truth? We're going to go into some things that Dana Castellaro was investigating that he felt the octopus may have had their tentacles in. What started as just a simple inquiry into computer software theft turned into a much larger conspiracy spiral, starting with Inslaw, a computer software company that worked with the Department of Justice. Inslaw created a software called Promise that was used by the Department of Justice. It included the CIA, Attorney Generals, law enforcement agencies, U.S. attorneys, IRS, etc. Everybody. Everybody. To track cases, they ranked their priorities. It helped allocate resources for each case. Inslaw was originally a nonprofit company, which was funded by the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration, which was a government body. So, of course, the government would be using the software. Yeah, makes sense. And around the same time in early 1978, the government passed the U.S. copyright law, and it went into effect and stated that anything that was created before 1978 was going to be considered public domain. Anything after would be up for copyright, which meant anyone could use this promise software. That seems convenient. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, the Department of Justice still wanted to use the software, and they went about it the right way. They asked to get a license to use it. However, with this license came some stipulations. They weren't supposed to alter or distribute the software in any way. Pretty standard agreement stuff. In 1981, however, the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration was dissolved. So Inslaw needed funding, and they switched to a for-profit company, which meant they were no longer 
funded by the government. They were no longer a government entity. Right. They needed to make their own money. They got into a three-year contract with the government for about $9.6 million. So they were going to be making some bank. Now, here's where things start getting sideways. The Department of Justice makes their own changes and even distributes to other agencies and foreign allies, which, of course, is a breach of contract. They also, within about the second year of their contract, began to withhold payments to Enslaw for numerous reasons. They claimed Enslaw had overcharged for services. They started saying that they were having problems switching to a different type of computer, so they started refusing to pay Enslaw. Now, of course, Enslaw is going to take the Department of Justice to court because they want to be paid. Yeah, that's a lot of money they're missing out on. Right, especially in the second year. That's going to be two-thirds of their contract payment they're not receiving. And I'm sure they were banking on, you know, the U.S. government to pay them. Yeah. Who wouldn't? Right. With all the court fees and the Department of Justice dragging their feet, Enslaw is eventually bankrupted. Of course, now Enslaw is going to take them to bankruptcy court. So they're not giving up without a fight then. Right. And with good reason. In 1987, Bankruptcy Court of D.C. Judge George Basin ruled that the Department of Justice had stolen promise and awarded Enslaw $6.8 million in damages and, in the process, found that the Department of Justice officials made a concerted effort to bankrupt Enslaw and placed the promise software up for auction. No. Yeah, surprise, surprise. Now, these findings relied on testimonies of several justice employees and internal memoranda that outlined a plan to get promise software so there were people actually claiming that this was the plan all along so this wasn't just a thing that kind of happened as it happened they planned this start finish this was a plan to take this software gotcha dc circuit court of appeals reversed the case on a legal technicality surprise again stating that the bankruptcy court had no jurisdiction and they couldn't award ends all that money why though they're saying that the bankruptcy court had no right to say that the Department of Justice stole the software. This was just for bankruptcy. This wasn't... Oh, they didn't have the authority to right. say why they were bankrupt, just that they were bankrupt. The, the, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Coincidentally, the IRS begins to audit Enslaw several times during these court battles with the Department of Justice and requested that Enslaw be liquidated. That was ruled against, thankfully. Now, remember that the IRS was also using the Promise software. sure was. Which doesn't seem fishy at all. (laughs) It was then suggested by the House of Judiciary Committee that, among others, Edwin Meese, who was presidential counselor and later attorney general, and D. Lowell Jensen, who was deputy attorney general, had conspired to steal the Promise software. The committee report also accuses Attorney General Dick Thornburg of stonewalling congressional inquiries, turning a blind eye to the possible destruction of evidence with the Justice Department, and ignoring their harassment of employees questioned by congressional investigators. So he was just covering things up is what they're saying here. Yeah. If anybody had any kind of information that they were sharing, they were getting harassed. They were getting, you know. They were getting shut up. Yeah, they were getting shut up. The committee then voted to adopt the investigative report on August 11th, 1992. They asked then-Attorney General William Barr, yes, that William Barr that is now currently Attorney General, to immediately settle Enslaw's claims in a fair and equitable manner, and strongly recommends that the department seek the appointment of an independent counsel. So they just told them to get a lawyer. Yeah. Find somebody. Help investigate this. Let's get it over with. 
William Barr refused the independent counsel and said, oh, the Department of Justice can investigate itself. We got this. What now? They, we don't need... They can do this. We don't need an outside source. We can do it ourselves and be totally fair and non-biased and definitely will not rule in our own favor. Right. Okay. So, of course, in 1998, a ruling was made that the U.S. government had not done anything illegal and were to pay Inns Law zero dollars. So just to recap here. <laughs> Inns Law made this program promise. Mm-hmm. The government took it and was using it. There it is. They agreed to pay for it. Yep. They stopped paying for it. Yep. They bankrupted the company that made it. They sure did. And then they decided they didn't do anything wrong and didn't steal anything. That's right. Okay. They investigated themselves. Right. This is fun. Clearly, nothing nothing was done wrong here. Right. <laughs> so, all of this information to say this. Why would the Department of Justice want this software so much? This is where conspiracies start. Okay. One theory is that, of course, they wanted to further use this to track agents, targets, etc. They can alter this in a way that could find people. It could also be used as a type of Trojan horse that the Department of Justice could use to eavesdrop undetected. Another conspiracy suggests that the money that the Department of Justice made selling this to other agencies was used in other issues that we'll talk about in a minute, such as the October surprise and the Iran-Contra affair. Wow. Let's get on with our next conspiracy. So all these conspiracies that we're talking about are tied together via this octopus. Right. Casalero, and we'll talk about his main source of all of this in a little bit, believes that all of these conspiracies that I'm going to talk about, the octopus had some kind of control over. They're all intertwined. They all have something to do with each other. And you'll see in a minute how they all kind of connect. Yeah. So the next one we're going to talk about is the Cabazon murders. In the 80s, the Cabazon and the Morongo tribes in California had small bingo parlors set up. And the government tried to shut those down because, of course, if the government's not making money off of it, they don't want it there. Right. If we can't have any, you can't either. <laughs> right. And, of course, the tribes said, uh-uh, this is on our reservation. This is, has to do with our government you cannot do anything with it. And, of course, they won in 1987 over this. Good. So they set up, yeah, they set up their own casinos and such afterwards. Now, a man by the name of John Philip Nichols, who was an ex-CIA agent and a financial advisor to the Gabazon people, began using this as a way to bring in international business associates onto the reservation. Which doesn't sound so bad. Except he's wanting to talk about illegal business. Because the government can't come there. Because the government can't come there. The dealings he went over included arms sales, selling of cigarettes and alcohol by mail, of course, so it couldn't be taxed. Uh, There were also connections with Saudi arms dealers, Nicaraguan Contras, manufacturing of weapons on Native American land. There were talks about working with Wackenhut, which is a private security firm. They have their ties with the CIA and the Republican Party, allegedly. They have their own list of conspiracies. We are not going to talk about that because that is another rabbit hole for another time. Fred Alvarez, Cabazon tribal leader, wasn't thrilled about all of these things going on on his reservation. And when he learned that Nichols was actually taking money off the top from casinos, he threatened to expose the corrupt activities going on. In 1981, Fred Alvarez, his girlfriend Patty Castro, and his friend Ralph Boger were killed, execution style, before they could make those allegations. That's not suspicious at all. No. 
It turns out that Nichols had actually hired a hitman, Jimmy Hughes, to murder them. Nichols died in 2001 before Jimmy Hughes was arrested in 2009. In 2010, charges were dropped and Hughes was released from jail. In 2010? But this happened in 1981. Yeah. And they didn't arrest him until 2009? There's an actual story with that and you can look it up for more information. But Fred Alvarez's daughter, I believe, and Ralph Boger's son, and I might have that flip-flopped, I'm not entirely sure, actually went in incognito style found Jimmy Hughes, had him confess to all of this, like on camera or something, which is what got him arrested. Wow. So it wasn't even the police. It was like family members. Yeah. Holy cow. But those charges were dropped. Oh, so I wonder why the police didn't find him. I don't know if it makes a difference, but he does have a distant cousin who's a Riverside, California district attorney. Mm, That could be a connection Rod Pacheco. So summarizing Mm -hmm. this tribe started a reservation casino Mm -hmm. someone else came in and was using it to conduct illegal activities yes when the tribal leader starts to shut it down he's executed Mm -hmm. along with his girlfriend and friend right and then later like years and years later when they're finally arrested for this all charges are just dropped that's it that's <laughs> That's some stuff. I mean, it's starting to look pretty shady. Okay, so what does this have to do with the octopus? Casalero tied the Cabazon's arms company to a Reagan crony within the government, and the weapons made on the reservation were allegedly given to the Contras, which we'll talk about in a minute. That's another part of the conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Super by shady. By the stuff. octopus. Right. Now, the next one we're going into is called the October Surprise. In 1979, Jimmy Carter was president, and he was going to start gearing up for his re-election campaign for the next year. He was going to be running against Ronald Reagan. In November of 79, the U.S. Embassy in Iran is stormed by student revolutionaries, and American diplomats are taken hostage. Now, if Carter could negotiate with these revolutionaries and free the American hostages, then pretty sure, without a doubt, he would win his re-election. But... If those in the Reagan campaign had anything to do with it, that was not going to happen. And this is where the conspiracy starts. Theorists claim that there were secret talks from people involved with the Reagan-Bush campaign. Some even claim that George H.W. Bush actually attended one of these meetings, but there's no proof that I could find. They had meetings with Iran to hold the American hostages until after the election to prevent Carter from gaining any political advantage. So the theory is that they were willing to let these hostages remain in Mm -hmm. hostage to keep Carter from being reelected. Yep. Now, what was strange is that only minutes after Ronald Reagan's inaugural speech, the hostages were freed after being hostages for 444 days. Just they decided, oh, now's a good time. Yeah. Okay. All good. Bye, guys. It's almost like they agreed to do it after Reagan was inaugurated. Right? Isn't that weird? (laughs) shortly after there were also claims that weapons were being shipped to iran via israel which seems to maybe confirm a payment of some kind maybe from that hostage deal they made Hmm. now this needs some evidence and what i could find was that in 1983 there were links to spies for the reagan campaign that were listening in on the carter iran negotiations they were listening to jimmy carter negotiating with iran Some say it is through the Promise software that we mentioned earlier that they were able to listen 
to these negotiations. So there's that tied back mm-hmm. in. And once, of course, they had enough information, they jumped in to hijack these negotiations for the Reagan campaign. Others also came forward to back up these claims, including former Iranian President Abal Hassan Bani Sadir and the former Soviet Union who claimed to have monitored these talks between Reagan and the Iranian officials. So literally the president of Iran is saying, yeah, that happened. Yeah, we did that. Oh. Yeah. And the government's just like, nah. (laughs) He's silly. (laughs) Silly president. Now, all of this leads up to the next topic, which is the Iran-Contra affair. Which is the only one I had ever heard of before this episode. I don't know a whole lot about it, but I had heard of it at least. Well, all of this is before we were born, too. Right, yeah. So... (laughs) So I didn't know anything about it until I started looking all of this up. The Iran-Contra affair was a U.S. political scandal in the 80s in which the National Security Council became involved with secret weapons transactions and other activities that were either prohibited by the U.S. Congress or it violated the stated public policy of the government. So they were selling weapons to people they shouldn't be selling weapons to, essentially. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Yeah. In 1979, the leftist Sandinistas had taken over power in Nicaragua, and the Reagan administration feared that their communist views would spread throughout Central America. Oh, no. (laughs) And in the early 80s, the U.S. government were providing military aid and financial support for the Nicaraguans that were fighting the Sandinistas, which were the Contras. When the American popular support began to wither because they were afraid of another Vietnam War-like conflict which they didn't want. The Democratic-led Congress actually passed a legislation in 84, which was called the Second Boland Amendment, that banned both direct and indirect U.S. military aid to the Contras, which Reagan didn't like. Not sure why. Why (coughs) was he so bent on sending (laughs) weapons to these people? Hmm. In the meantime, U.S. efforts to engage with moderate elements on Iran were complicated when Shiite terrorists in Lebanon loyal to Iran took a number of American citizens hostage again. So despite this legislation being passed, the head of the National Security Council, who was Robert McFarlane, undertook the sale of anti-tank and anti-aircraft missiles to Iran in the mistaken belief that it would actually secure the release of the hostages. A portion of the $48 million that Iran paid for these arms was diverted by the National Security Council and given to the Contras. Aid for the Contras was also solicited and obtained from third-party countries, which laid the groundwork for potential quid pro quo requests from them, which all of this violated this amendment. They only got caught when a plane with the supplies was shot down and the pilot taken prisoner by the Sandinistas. So they were selling these arms, they were taking money and giving it to the Contras, which they should not have been doing. There is literally a law that said, hey, they don't made a give law them stuff. <laughs> Specifically for this. And then they did it anyway. <clears throat> and they did it anyway. Now, the conspiracy is that the U.S. arms deal that traded missiles and weapons to the Contras was for the release of American hostages in Lebanon, but also was part of the payback for the October surprise deal made during the Reagan campaign. So, like, it wasn't that Reagan was so hell-bent on helping them. It was he didn't have a choice. Yeah, he was paying them back for... He owed them. Right. He owed them. Now, the last big conspiracy that I'm going to go over is on the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, which is the BCCI, if you hear it another way. So, in the hunt for the octopus, Casalero came across the Bank of Credit and Commerce International. It was founded in 1972 by a Pakistani financier 
and after only 10 years had over 400 branches open in 78 countries and assets in excess of 20 billion U.S. dollars, which made it the seventh largest private bank in the world. That's either the best bank that's ever existed. Or the shadiest bank. Exactly. (laughs) In the 80s, they actually came under scrutiny, surprise, due to concerns that it was being poorly regulated, which means no rules. Anybody could put their money here for any reason. Yep. And in 91, customs and bank regulators in seven countries were raided and were locked down. It was then revealed that the BCCI was set up deliberately to avoid centralized regulatory review. Shocker. Operating extensively in bank secrecy jurisdictions, which means they were only placed in places that didn't really have rules on banks. You can just do whatever you like. Uh, Wait, okay, so there's no regulations here. Let's put a bank there. There's none there. Let's put a bank here. Mm -hmm. This means, of course, that some very shady people were doing some very shady things and using this bank to move the money back and forth to pay for those shady things because they could do it secretly without having to answer to anyone for it. Casalero was beginning to make these connections to all these shady things. One of those being the money used for the Iran-Contra affair was here in the BCCI. The National Security Council had accounts at the BCCI which were used for a variety of covert operations, which included transfers of money and weapons during the Iran-Contra affair. There were other claims that Reagan's CIA used the BCCI to run guns to Saddam Hussein, finance Osama bin Laden, and carry out other agency black ops. It's said that one of the BCCI's largest Saudi investors helped bail out George W. Bush's trouble oil investments. Wow. So, could this be where the members of the octopus were doing all their shady deeds? Okay. I see the connections here. <laughs> like I'm, I'm, It's like, yeah, it's all one tangled mess. The man who is Casalero's main source for the Inslaw case as well as some as some of these other conspiracies, was a man named Michael J. Reconosciuto. He was a whistleblower in the Inslaw case. He stated he was one of the people who made alterations to the promise software for the government. Uh, he also mentioned that he had his hands in the Cabazon reservation deals, as well as a few other things that couldn't be exactly verified. He basically said he was involved in all this stuff, Yeah, right? he at okay. least knew about all of this stuff. And when he came forward in the case for Enslaw, eight days after, he was arrested for conspiracy to manufacture, conspiracy to distribute, possession with intent to distribute, and with distribution, which was a total of 10 counts, related to methamphetamine and methadone. Now, he claims that this was a setup by the government for coming forward in the Enslaw case, which is coincidental, like I said, because this was just a week after Only eight days after he came forward. Yeah. They said that they found high levels of barium, which I assume has something to do with methamphetamines, methadone. I don't know. I don't have a meth lab. Yeah, me either. So, (laughs) Reconosciuto claims that he was extracting precious metals on his property, and barium does have a specialized usage for metallurgy in processing platinum. But did they find a meth lab in his home? It all just says... That it was based off the barium, from what I understand. So they, like, he does have, a, he has a lab, but he says it's for metalworking, like for extracting me- uh, the precious metals. The yeah. precious metals. <laughs> <laughs> but they're saying, no, this is a meth lab. You're going to prison. So he has a lab, 
for this metal thing he's doing. And they're like, oh, that's a meth lab over there. Yeah. And they arrest him for that. Right. They don't find any meth on his property, though. Not that I could find. This is this is literally. Yeah. But how do they know he's distributing (laughs) and possession? It's possession with intent to distribute. But they didn't find any meth. But the government said so. What? (laughs) Reconosciuto also believed that the octopus had its tentacles wrapped in many other things throughout history that include the ousting of President Richard Nixon and Watergate, the ousting of Australian Prime Minister Go Whitlam, the ousting of the Shah of Iran, the murder of Chilean President Salvador Allende, which was actually ruled a suicide, the murder of JFK, The creation of the Golden Triangle, which had to do with opium and heroin being sent through. The Latin American drug trade, the Cuban Bay of Pigs, which is a failed attempt of overthrowing Castro. CIA drug smuggling, Area 51, the Human Genome Project, Princess Diana's death. Okay, now this is getting a little too crazy for me. So so there are some questions about Reconosciuto as a source. Yeah, I mean... But just because he got crazy on some things doesn't necessarily mean he was totally off. Right. And he had to have had something that Casalero could see. Like something that made him believe it. Yeah. Him. Or maybe he just went down a rabbit hole. Maybe and Casalero got to... just got sucked in. Yeah. But we can talk about that right now. Here we go. <laughs> so did Casalero just get sucked into this crazy world of conspiracy theorists and then commit suicide when it was leading nowhere when he realized he'd wasted all this time or or was Casalero simply just taken out because he was getting too close to the truth so here's my evidence to back up that this was probably a suicide first there was a note left it was in his handwriting but it wasn't his usual handwriting style I guess Danny was kind of long-winded but it was it was in his handwriting there was a suicide note Second, there was no sign of a struggle in the hotel room. There was no evidence anybody else had been in there. There was no sign of forced entry. It seems as though he was alone in his hotel room. There was alcohol in the hotel room. There was the wine bottle. There was the beer can. If he was mixing his medications, antidepressants, opiates, if he was mixing these medications with alcohol, he may not have been in his right mind. It may have been enough to push him over the edge. Also, Casalero was having some money problems. He had been selling his shares of that computer trade business we talked about. And he had published a book, but it wasn't selling as well as he thought it would. And he had also mentioned to his brother about an upcoming mortgage payment he was worried about. So financial problems can have a big strain Mm -hmm. on people. Casalero had also been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis about six months before his suicide or death. Now, this was a very minor case. It hadn't progressed very far. It wasn't interfering with his daily life yet. But it could still be a cause of depression, something to know I'm going to get there one day, you know? And just, yeah, and just end it. Also, there's that blood spatter analysis. Mm -hmm. There were no void patterns in the spatter, which means there was no one else in the room with him, theoretically. We do have that detective taking it back later once he found out about the towels, So that one's a little bit questionable because maybe he took it back because he didn't have all the information, Mm -hmm. but he still believed that to be the case. But I guess there's no way to prove for sure without having seen the actual crime scene. And he couldn't because it had been cleaned. Mm -hmm. Also, the neighbors on either side of Danny's hotel room didn't hear anything. 
there was an entire family on one side, and then there was Mike Looney on the other side, who would have heard something, I'm sure. He's there by himself, maybe watching TV. Hotel rooms aren't known for being... Especially soundproof. Soundproof, yeah. (laughs) And no one heard anything that night. Yeah. So, I mean... Altogether, we have financial problems. We have a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. We have no evidence anyone else was in the room. We have possible mixes of drugs and alcohol. We have a suicide note. I mean, it it's very, very plausible this was a suicide. Oh, and if his source that not fell through, maybe he wasn't feeling so great about his case. Yeah, I mean, if he's feeling like he's wasted all this time on this conspiracy crazy guy, and now he hasn't even showed up, and he's reevaluating what he's doing here, mm-hmm. that's a downer. Yeah, especially if this is something you made such a big deal about. Right. And worked so hard on. That much time and that much energy on it, and now to just, it's gone. Yeah. So, Ashley, what do you have for us in terms of homicide? Oh, events? are you ready? I am ready. Let's do this. First of all, the cuts were so deep on his arms, it actually slashed a tendon, like we mentioned. How would he have had the strength to do more cuts on another arm? It's possible. I will say that. And if there were drugs and alcohol involved, he may not have been feeling that yet. Yeah, that's true. But blood loss. I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah, but the blood loss even. Mm Mm-hmm. Especially deep enough to cut through tendons. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a lot. Unless he did that first. Because I'm not sure which side the tendon was cut. Oh, uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. And I'm not sure if he was right or left-handed. And if he did cut through tendons, how did he hold the razor for the other hand? Unless it was on the second hand. Yeah. So, hmm. that's something to consider. Now, the note you mentioned was in his handwriting. And like you said, it was not usually the way he writes. He kind of writes long-winded. Uh, He also makes references to God, though he was raised Roman Catholic. He wasn't very religious as an adult. But I would assume, I would also say that if you're that close to suicide, maybe that's something you're thinking about anyway. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. He was also squeamish around blood. Like, he wouldn't even have any minor things done to him. No blood tests because it bothered him so much. He was very squeamish around it. Okay, so that is a very strange way to kill yourself then if you don't like blood. Literally in a bathtub full of blood. Right. Also, don't forget the harassing late night phone calls about killing him. That. Telling him to die. That is a good point. That is some suspicious stuff there. (laughs) Also telling his brother that if something happened to him in Martinsburg, it wasn't an accident. He was already thinking about this. So he also told the detective about being there. Also, let's talk about the shoddy police work. Oh, it was so bad. They drained the tub. They didn't get any debris. They embalmed the body before the autopsy. That's honestly the part that blows my mind more than anything else. Yeah. Uh, Not contacting the next of kin for two days. Having that room clean the next day. They tossed those towels. In fact, they tossed those towels in a dumpster. They like took them outside and put them in a dumpster. Yeah, they just took them outside and threw them in a dumpster. There's also reports that were hidden or that were lied about uh, with witness testimonies. A second witness claimed to have seen the briefcase that he was carrying that they didn't find. Olga's testimony of hearing the harassing phone calls. Olga's testimony of knowing that she helped him pack those briefcases. Those are all omitted? Like, those are all... Right. They were hidden for a while. Nobody knew about them till later. Mm-hmm. Now, also, 
90% of the files on Danny's death are missing. The Department of Justice and the FBI can't seem to agree on where they are, its status. So, And very... the Department of Justice is the one he was investigating, it right? It sure is. Hmm. Elliot Richardson, who was a former attorney general, is quoted, and actually quoted from the Unsolved Mysteries episode on this case, is saying that he believes that with the evidence that he knows of, that it looks like Casalero was murdered and not just simply committed suicide. So he actually even believes that there's more to this. than A just... former attorney general mm-hmm. thinks that he was murdered. Yep. Olga, his housekeeper, had also mentioned that Danny had advised her not to answer the phone at times and to watch out when she was coming to and from his home. She had also noticed him checking his vehicle before getting into it, which that one's specifically odd. That's pretty strong paranoia at yeah. that point. And that could have just been from the phone calls, but... Who was making the, f- the phone calls? Exactly. Danny also had been planning on heading out to the Gabazon Reservation in Indio, California, just days after he died. Like, that was going to be his next stop after Martinsburg, West Virginia. Why is he planning to keep going with this case if he was planning on committing suicide? Unless the suicide was more of a spur of the moment, like his source didn't show up, and that was just kind of the the last straw of the day, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, just that one little thing that pushed you over the edge. Yeah. And you can't, I mean, you can't rule out people, there's people that commit suicide and have plans. I mean, like Kate Spade had talked about a vacation, the not before she killed herself. Mm-hmm. So it's not. That's not hard evidence, yeah. but it's it's something. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that there were no signs of struggle, mm-hmm. no sign of forced entry. According to Danny's brother, the autopsy reported a bruise on the upper left arm. And a bruise on the head that were not accounted for. And there were also three fingernails missing on one of those hands. Now, the fingernails missing on the hand were not in the autopsy report. But that came from Danny's brother himself, right? It did. The bruises. We get bruises all the time. Right, yeah. I have bruises all the time. I don't know where they came from. But missing fingernails is kind of strange. And why would it not be in the autopsy report? Yeah. At the funeral... There were claims of a highly decorated military officer that arrived in a limousine near the end of the service. No one knew who he was. No one recognized him. And the man placed a medal in the casket just before it was lowered into the ground. They didn't mention what the medal was. They might not have even seen it. It was probably right before. Yeah, I guess somebody would have to jump up and run and grab it off the casket or something. But no one knew who he was. And I guess today they still don't. Hmm. But what I find odd is, why was he there? Like, the man was there, it seemed, to pay his respects, not in any kind of bad way. Also an important note, Danny was never in the military. So for a military officer to come up and put some kind of metal on his casket is extra strange. Mm -hmm. Now, from what I understand, Casalero's effects had been kept even after his case had concluded. And there was no explanation as to why they were kept. And as far as I understand... They never received those, which was his wallet, his suitcase. Everything he had with everything him. Everything he had with him. The police kept it. Right. Which, if it wasn't a homicide case, they have no reason to need evidence, right? As far as I understand. Hmm. This should have been, if this was a suicide, this should have been, like, done, and then his effects given off to his family. Now, the last, and the strangest to me, is that Danny Casalero's death wasn't the only one around this time. There were many other journalists' deaths who were investigating these things in some form or another. You have Anson Ng, 
who was a journalist who was investigating the BCCI, he was found dead in a similar fashion as Danny in his home in Guatemala in July 91. Jonathan Moyle, who was an editor of a magazine called Defense Helicopter World, he was found dead in his hotel on March 1990 in Chile. An autopsy couldn't be done because his vital organs were gone. Ew, what? Someone took them. His father believes that it was because he was about to uncover an arms deal between Chile and Iraq. There's Alan Stadorf, who was an NSA employee. He was found beaten to death in the backseat of his car in January of 1991. He allegedly gave copies of computer printouts from the Promise spying database system. So he was trying to prove that they were using Promise to spy yes. on people. There's Larry Guerin, who was a PI for Michael Reconosciuto. He died in February 1987 while he was investigating the Inslaw case. There's Paul Wilcher, who died in June 1993. He was a lawyer to the whistleblowers Rodney Stitch and Gunter Carl Russbacher. Wilcher died in disputed circumstances a month after writing a letter to the then-new U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno alleging that the CIA was killing people to cover up mind control experience and that the Waco incident was one of these events. Now, that seems a little out there, but... No, there's actual documents. Yeah. The government experimented with mind control. And I cannot wait to tell you guys one day. It's going to be so cool. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And last, there's Ian Spiro, who died in November of 92. He helped British and U.S. intelligence agencies in efforts to win release of Western hostages in Lebanon. His wife and children were found shot to death, and three days later, they found his body in his vehicle... And he had died from cyanide poisoning, which could easily just be a suicide homicide. But it's really odd considering everything around that time. So, did Danny Casolaro kill himself? Or was it the government? I mean, we have multiple (laughs) investigators dying. We have all this evidence we've just told you about his death itself. We have all these conspiracies that actually can be tied together fairly easily. Yeah, It's not that much of a stretch. I mean, some of it we even have actual evidence that, yeah, that happened mm-hmm. for sure. Absolutely. I don't know. I mean, it's it's fairly easy to say someone killed themselves. But like you said, there's just so much. There's so much. There's so much shoddy police work. That also makes it more suspicious Mm -hmm. and also makes it harder to prove whether it was a suicide or not. And for the record, who knows if the police were acting for the government or if they just did shoddy police work. Right. So maybe they just weren't feeling it that day. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Hey, guys. So whatever you decide, let us know. Yeah, I'd love to know. Comment on our social media and let us know if you think he killed himself or if it was a homicide. Thanks for listening. Like us on Facebook at True Crimes and Weird Times Podcast. Follow us on Instagram at True Crimes Weird Times. Email us your stories at truecrimesweirdtimes at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. Bye.